Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit will be Tim Phillips, uh, who doesn't have to organize all the shows like I have to. He can just come on and talk about the movie, but oh boy, it's that time of year where there's so much organizing and stuff to do. Uh, you gotta get all your holiday shows organized and ready to go so that you can, you know, actually sit down and enjoy the holidays. Uh, take a break from these movies and probably watch some more movies. Because there's never enough time to watch all the movies you want. And that's kind of what end credits has always been about for the most part (laughs) let's begin today's show end credits is a local movie show for local movie fans we are here every wednesday at 3 p.m to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies which this week will be the new hybrid documentary a cop movie which you can now stream on the netflix that is going to be in the back half of the show for the first half I had something, well, different planned for the opening part of the show, which unfortunately never came to fruition, which happens sometimes in the uh, podcasting, radio, journalism business, best laid plans of all that. So I had to go back into the archive. See, I just opened my binder because that's where my archive is uh, of old notes. You know, so as I said at the top of the show, we're going on Christmas break. Uh, obviously, at the end of next month. So one of the, one of the movies that's going to come out over the break is the new Amazon movie called Being the Ricardos, which is from Aaron Sorkin. It is about um, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, uh, their relationship when they were making I Love Lucy. You can go watch the trailer now. And there's been some, like, controversy because um, they've they hired... Javier Bardem to play, who is a Spanish actor, uh, a Spanish as in from Spain, uh, <laughs> to play the Cuban uh, Desi Arnaz. Um, and so there's been a back and forth about, you know, representation and, and all that stuff. So it's, even before this, gotten, well, I mean, no news is good news. I was going to say it's gotten buzz, but it's not really buzz because buzz is supposed to be positive. But I mean, firmly under the, the, the umbrella of no press is bad press, I guess we can say that it's gotten buzz. Anyway, uh, it made me want to dive into the archives and revisit the Aaron Sorkin ranking uh, I did for Run the Series around this time last year when Trial for the Chicago 7 came out. Um, This has been amended uh, to include the entry of the Trial for Chicago 7, and not just at the bottom. I didn't stick it at the bottom. I wasn't lazy about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I could I could have been lazy, I wasn't. So here is the amended list of the Sorkin movies. I keep Malice at the bottom, although it, I mean Alec Baldwin has definitely almost definitely not had good press lately. Uh, but he gets to chew the scenery really good. It's like vintage 90s Alec Baldwin, vintage, vintage 90s Nicole Kidman. Um, it's one of these sexy thrillers that was all the rage in the early 90s after uh, Basic Instinct came out. Uh, Malice is almost, I mean, it's almost in the mold of Basic Instinct, except Alec Baldwin is almost playing like a, a male version of the Sharon Stone character. But it's got good, like, campy 
thrills in it. Uh, this is kind of one of those work for hire things that Sorkin did when he was trying to break into the business. And yeah, so it stays at number eight. Staying at number seven is Moneyball because I mean it's not entirely a Sorkin joint, even though it, you know he he co-wrote the script. I think it was Steve Zillian. Uh, it does have his voice at times in it, and I think there was a lot of character work he did um, on the the Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill characters. I think that's where you sort of see most of uh, the work, the heavy lifting that Sorkin did on that script. But it's uh, a perfectly enjoyable effort. Um, I mean, if you like sports movies, um, it's, it's definitely a very well-made sports movie. Plus, you get, like, transformational Chris Pratt in it. I mean, I know Chris Pratt isn't everybody's favorite person in the world right now. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like halfway between his, him, his, like, schlubby days on, like, teen dramas to uh, being the, the beefcake action hero he is now. So that's fun. Uh, so number six is Molly's... No, not number six. Number seven, I should say. I'm still reading the old numbers. Dope. All right. So number seven is Molly's Game, which was Sorkin's first directorial effort. It's interesting because it's the rare instance where Sorkin has a female protagonist. It is anchored, though. Anchored with a capital A with voiceover work, which does no good whatsoever. If you are using this much voiceover in your script, you are doing a crappy job as a screenwriter. This should be taught in every screenwriting course. Heck, it should be taught in every writing course. Look at this. The teacher should literally get up and say, look at this voiceover. Look at all the voiceover here. It's just, no, it it's not good. I mean, even though I think Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba are really, really good together, uh, I wish the script had sort of let them just be themselves. And, you know, instead we get voiceover Palooza. Here we go. I'm sliding in and out. Number six, Trial of Chicago 7. I did toy with putting it on the bottom because this is like Sorkin in his sleep. I remain committed to this after we reviewed it last year. It is Aaron Sorkin on autopilot. He could have done this movie 20 years ago. It would have been exactly the same. I will say that in sort of in the wake of the Kyle Rittenhouse decision last week, uh, it's worthwhile to be reminded that bad judges in high-profile cases have always been a thing. And you do get that with uh, Frank Langella as the judge in Charlie Chicago 7. But, you know, otherwise, this is just... Uh, even the actors, which, you know, is kind of Sorkin's thing with building great characters, great conflict, great dialogue. It just everybody's kind of going through the paces here, up to and including uh, Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman, which um, you would think would be an interesting dynamic character to play. Doesn't help that Sasha Baron Cohen is about 30 years older than Abby Hoffman was at the time of, of the actual trial of the Chicago 7. I mean, Abby Hoffman, when he played, excuse me, Sasha Baron Cohen, when he played Abby Hoffman, was about 30 years older than the real Hoffman uh, that he portrayed in 1969 in the movie. I think that's all sorted out. 
there's some good there's some interesting back and forth in it i i will admit but um it just it it just it's it's not as interesting or dynamic as it could have been it is just it's sorkin and westing west wing mode and then on top of it all you have perhaps the most interesting bit of this given the time um the inclusion of Bobby Seale as the eighth member of the Chicago Seven because they needed um, someone who was black to sort of make the the trial of the Chicago the, the Chicago Seven I should say seem uh, more frightening to a white jury in the nineteen sixties. That wasn't really addressed. I think, uh, although it's Ab- uh, Yaha Abdul Mateen the second, he gets kind of the short shrift, and that's a that's a shame because, as we've seen, he's a really excellent actor. We keep seeing it again and again. This guy's acting his butt off, but Aaron Sorkin does him no favors. Number five, I have Steve Jobs, which I like. I find it interesting. Um, the the way that Steve Jobs' life is told in these, like, three s- different events, which are, like, various product launches for his company, so it's with the launch of the Mac, the launch of Next, and then the launch of iMac, uh, these three, like, very different sort of time periods, you see the evolution of personal computing, you see the evolution of the cult of Steve Jobs, you see the evolution of, uh, of Steve Jobs' relationship with his co-workers and his co-founder at Apple and his daughter and a lot of this, there's a lot of discussion about this not being wholly, um, I guess, exact to real life, um, which I guess may be another way of saying false. But I mean, in, in terms of drama, I think it's very well done. I think it's, you know, you also have Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs. You have Seth Rogen as Wozniak. I mean, this was a real chance for Seth Rogen to stretch. Perhaps people don't recall that, you know, up until this point, Seth Rogen was, by and large, um, known as a comedic actor. And this is him, like, with the possible exception of that Green Hornet movie. But this is him, like, really stretching and really, like, letting himself be tested by the material. You have Kate Winslet. You have Michael Stuhlbarg. Uh really great cast all around um number four i still have a few good men which was based on a stage play and when you watch the movie you can tell it was based on a stage play because a lot of it is angled to about two or three sets (laughs) and i mean it's just it's it's kind of like vintage 90s now because you get like tom cruise you get Demi Moore, you get Jack Nicholson, um, get a lot of really great smaller performances too. I like Kevin Bacon a lot in the movie as the prosecutor. He's a lot of fun. John Amos as the judge is good. Kiefer Sutherland as like um, Jack Nicholson's. Uh, the, I guess he's like the squad leader at Guantanamo, but uh, he's <laughs> this really thick Southern accent that makes him kind of like a really oily villain. Uh, Kiefer's a lot of fun in these kind of like smaller roles. Mentioned Kiefer, but apparently um, Rachel Guthrie, the mayor's wife, recently interviewed Kiefer Sutherland for the 20th anniversary of 24, which is really awesome. So that's good for her. Shout out to Mrs. Guthrie. At number three, I have Charlie Wilson's War, which is interesting, relevant, still complex. You have Tom Hanks kind of playing 
I mean, he's still essentially playing an affable good guy, even though Charlie Wilson himself is kind of oily and um, <laughs> just he's a good old fashioned con- congressional politician who like does a lot of uh, behind the scenes, glad handing, backslapping, horse trading. Uh, the kind of Congress person you don't really encounter anymore because everything's so heavily partisan in the United States. He's very transactional. Um, but it's interesting watching Tom Hanks, I guess, flirt with corruption, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, it has a really fun Philip Seymour Hoffman performance as well as the CIA agent. Uh, Gust was his name. Um, really great scene with him and um, uh, John Slattery, uh, his boss at the CIA, uh, where they get into a, a, a screaming argument about uh, Gus not um, becoming the station chief of Helsinki because he's too coarse. Uh, you can probably find the clip on YouTube. In fact, I know you can, um, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, number two, I have the American president. I flirted with raising this a little because I think, you know, in, in, in terms of, like, movies just about, like, good people uh, trying to do good things and use their political office for good and, like, being caught in the machinations. I mean, the political scandals in um, The American President are... Um, him going too hard on assault rifles. <laughs> him going too hard on environmental protection. And uh, him having a girlfriend uh, who occasionally uh, stays at the White House. Wink! You know? So, I mean, these are, these are like, kind of... These scandals feel petty and antiquated compared to what's going on in American politics now, so which may be why it's such a relief to watch it now and just go, oh, isn't it nice? Or Michael Douglas as the president and Annette Benning as a lobbyist trying to have this cute romance in the middle of all this political tumult where nobody's talking about stolen elections <laughs> or science denial and there's a raging pandemic that half the country is ignoring. So, I mean... Simpler times, I guess, in 1995. Of course, all that laid the groundwork for the West Wing, which came out uh, four years later. And also Martin Sheen got a promotion from Chief of Staff to President. He was the Chief of Staff in the American President, so... Kudos to Mr. Sheen. And I'm keeping it number one, though, The Social Network, because... Aaron Sorkin has said time and time again, like, he's not a computer guy, if we're to put that in, like, parentheses. He's not a computer guy. But I think he understood the character of Mark Zuckerberg better than most of us. And watching The Social Network now and seeing, like, that portrayal of Zuckerberg as kind of this amoral... uh, I don't know, this amoral creature of self-pity and... Uh, self-satisfaction. Th- I think that has turned out to be the, cor- the sort of correct vision of Zuckerberg. I mean, not that, like, there's no good guys in this. Uh, the Winklevi are reprehensible people, and of course, Army Hammer has, um, not, let's say, let's say Army Hammer's not had a good year. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> the Winklevi kind of get tagged with this. Interestingly, Andrew Garfield, you know, plays uh, Zuckerberg's former friend who ends up being one of the 
plaintiffs who filed suit against him. Andrew Garfield, of course, has a really great year. He was in um, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. He's in uh, Tick, Tick, I think it's Tick, Tick, Boom, the Lin-Manuel Miranda-directed musical that is on Netflix right now. And he may or may not be in Spider-Man No Way Home, depending on who you believe. Uh, so that's coming soon. I did flirt with the idea of revisiting our, our run the series on the Spider-Man movies, which we also did around this time last year. But um, there's more to chew on with Sorkin, I think. I mean, we can we can talk to the cows come home about whether or not Spider-Man 3 is a worthy entry and all the... F-ups on the Amazing Spider-Man movies. We could. I have decided to try and turn down the dial as much about talking about these big tentpole superhero movies as much as possible. Although we will inevitably probably get back to them. Sigh. Alright. Uh, coming up next, we are going to review a very different movie indeed. A cop movie. And uh, this is an interesting movie because of um, the way it's sort of designed. Is it a drama? Is it a documentary? We're going to sort all that out. At first, we're going to play some music from an artist who is presently on that CFRU Top 20. This is All My Money from Fleece from the album Stunning and Atrocious. Is a cop movie stunning or atrocious? I guess you'll have to just wait and see. You're listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. Podemos actuar con un perfil fuerte, un perfil débil. Fingimos dentro de la realidad, no fingimos dentro de la fantasía. And that was a clip from a cop movie. It is the new film from Alonso Ruz Palacios, and it stars Monica Del Carmen and Raúl Briones. Okay, so now joining me on the line is Tim Phillips. Tim, how are you today? Doing well, Adam. How are you doing? I'm also well. Good to know. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> nice. We're just talking about 
the rock who was not in the movie we're reviewing today <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> well fortunately or unfortunately i'm not sure well, having mean, dwayne johnson would suit the tone that uh the director was going for but he could have gotten even more experimental if you just <laughs> brought the rock in at the end <laughs> This movie's all about The Rock. <laughs> we, we will now. We would now like to introduce you to the captain of this precinct, and it's just Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and he's not speaking Spanish. He's just speaking regular American English, yeah. and he's just he's just he's just there chewing them out in the end. For yeah, I don't know him and Samuel L. Jackson and Ooh, Will Ferrell. Actually, I wouldn't mind seeing that movie, whatever it is. That'd be good. <laughs> a cop movie too <laughs> yes <laughs> uh this is not that movie it is a cop movie which um sounds very generic but it's actually not very generic at all it's uh a documentary and the director is and i'm going to probably butcher his name alonzo uh ruiz palacios and i don't know tim how would you explain this to someone who has not been made aware of a cop movie. Um, yeah, it's kind of difficult to explain, but it's listed as a Netflix documentary, mm-hmm. but it really plays with the documentary form a lot. Mm-hmm. And it starts off as it's almost it starts off as a cop movie in a way, or almost like a cop TV show. You feel like you're mm-hmm. on a ride along with police officers in Mexico City. And you're seeing um, what they're going through in a day in pretty extraordinary circumstances. Uh, the lead character has to deliver a baby, like on her shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see that. And we've kind of seen that sort of stuff before, right? So it was kind of like what, what you'd see in a sort of like hyper-realistic police movie. But mm-hmm. it seemed like a fiction film. Mm-hmm. And then you start to see the more documentary elements to it, that it's based on real characters, um, uh, Teresa and Montoya, Montoya, who are actually a couple. They end up having a love affair while police officers and are known as the Love Patrol. <laughs> so we're following the Love Patrol. And then there's a breaking down in the fourth wall, which makes it quite quite an experimental movie so it goes from something you're used to seeing you're used to seeing a police officer film you're almost you're used to seeing like buddy cop movies it's not like a comedy like that but it's like you're used to seeing you know partners on the beat only these partners have a different twist they're romantically involved you're used to that but then uh the director really plays with form a lot um you know, it gets experimental where he breaks down the fourth wall and then we're watching the actors and it's a documentary on the actors playing the police officers, um, which is, which is really interesting. And actually I've watched the movie a couple of times because the first time I was watching it late at night, you know, we're streaming, (laughs) I was on a recliner, started dozing (laughs) off a bit. So, so I'm not no no indictment of the movie. Just it was late at night, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so I was dozing off. So I watched it a second time, and then I, I felt it was more effective the second time. Actually, um, the first time I felt it, maybe it was a, a little bit awkward. The transitions, like you could tell that they're trying, the director's trying to 
trying to play with form and it, it kind of drew me a little too out of the film which might be his intention you know break down the fourth wall take you out and then try to engage you again later like sort of like play with the audience a bit but mm. first time I found those transitions a bit awkward but then the second time I watched it I liked it liked it even more maybe because I I knew what was coming a little bit more and I was able to just ride ride it out ride the wave of the film but I just think yeah it's it's really um really good sort of analysis of the policing in Mexico City but also an analysis probably you could look at globally of you know the um the issues with the police force what they have to go through sort of the casual corruption of the police force mm. So you've got that on one hand, and then you've got also this sort of playing with form with the documentary, which I, I, I like watching, you know, I like documentaries that play with the form a bit. I think of like Errol Morris, his, his documentaries and like thin blue lines, police documentary, I think that plays with form Mm -hmm. and comes across more cinematic than, you know, just a fact-based documentary. And that's what this one has. And I think, there's a lot of energy to the to the film, which I didn't really get as much the first time while I was drifting off. But the second <laughs> time I was like, I was quite engaged with it. And I thought it's it's actually it, in many ways it's pulsating with energy and a lot of a lot of ideas there. And when when they actually talked to the actors about what it was like to because they were Im- they were like embedded in a police program and actually did some work on the streets as police officers mm-hmm. when they talk to, to them about it. I, I, I found that fascinating as well, mm-hmm. especially um, the, the gentleman Raul Briones who plays Montoya. Right. Cause he's totally, he's, you know, he's a guy that's used to protesting the police. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here he is playing a police officer. And I, I thought that that was really interesting seeing like how, he had to really change himself for the role and, mm-hmm. and and he had all these mixed emotions about the police force and he had to like set those aside to play a police officer, which I found fascinating. Yeah. Those, um, those confessional segments were interesting because he had the, the woman who's playing Teresa, Monica del Carmen. She's talking a lot about the training and how difficult it is to learn things. And because in the morning you're learning CPR and then in the afternoon you're learning like tactical training and, police weapons and there's like a portion where you actually see her struggling like to fire a gun at a target like yeah the the weight of that i mean also the fact that apparently in mexico you turn in your bulletproof vest and your gun at the end of the shift and then you pick them up again at the beginning of your shift you're not walking around with guns and ammo and tack gear even like the most basic thing like a bulletproof vest that that's like when you're on the job that's when you have your gun and your vest. And when you're off the job, you're, I, I found that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And like, even, even the police car, I think, cause she takes a cab at one point. Yeah. She takes a cab to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't usually see that. And you see him on the subway too. You yeah. don't usually see like in Canada, police officers no. taking public transit to get to their <laughs> patrol car. Right. No, it's yeah. interesting. And, um, 
it, it, I, I mean, it highlights an entirely different police culture. And I'm sure a lot of that is because they don't pay the police very well, which also contributes to the culture of corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it was really interesting to see those sort of dual confessionals. Um, Raul very much focused on like the, <laughs> the socio-political implications of what he's doing. And Monica very much focused on like, you know, this, I mean, the six months of training and everything they have to cover in that six month time span. I mean, and there was also interesting, they, they talked to some of the fellow cadets and, um, you know, some of them were like, well, my uncle is a cop or my dad is a cop. So, you know, here I am. It's, you know, <laughs> here I am enlisting in the police force. Yeah. Um, there was one woman there who's like, yeah, I'm like, she used to, she actually uses the word femicide. And I don't know if that's like a purposeful, like interpretation or if she was like using the actual Spanish word for femicide, but like, that's a very specific, like sort of scholarly word, mm-hmm. um, when talking about like the, the trend of, um, the disproportionate, uh, number of women who are killed, uh, sp- especially by domestic partners. And then there was somebody else who's like, I just want to help people. It's like, I think that would feel really good. Like to go out of my shift and like, just know that I helped somebody today. And this comes like over an hour into the movie where you're sort of been inundated with some of the, like just embedded corruption. And it's not necessarily like there's a Hollywood portrayal of the federal police in Mexico. That is like, they're just universally corrupt. Like Benicio del Toro in traffic where, (laughs) there's that scene in traffic where he's like just like chilling out with his partner and a tourist comes up to him like hey like my wallet was stolen it was like yeah like call the police (laughs) so it's like there's no there's no interest in serving and protecting at all um and it plays against this image of you know this hollywood image of the american cop who is almost nearly always virtuous and righteous and uh an exemplar of good civic behavior so it's playing with that image too. Like it really puts you into this morass, like this whole thing, that, that first scene where she responds to the, the birthing scene and she doesn't know what she's walking into. And we as an audience don't know what she's walking into either, which, you know, immediately puts like the beginning of this film on this, you know, kind of, uh, you're, an, you're kind of anticipating the worst. You're too, anticipating right? like, the worst. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And she, it's, it's a woman who's gone into labor. And apparently <laughs> they send the cop in first to determine it's a real medical call. Um, and then they send the ambulance at some point. And she explains how she had to call her husband to get the ambulance to this location. And by the time the paramedics get there, she's give, she's actually help the woman give birth and the paramedics themselves are interested in taking the placenta away because you can take the placenta and sell it to like cosmetic companies because it's yeah. a prime ingredient it's just like this gross <laughs> corruption it's just yeah it's just, nothing it's just, is sacred even the placenta <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly it's just everywhere and you're talking talking about like their bulletproof vests and stuff they have to pay extra to get higher quality yeah. You know, ones that aren't tattered, you get the tattered ones. If you don't, it's just all just sort of baked into everything that you, you, you have to pay, uh, you have to pay for everything. Right. And mm-hmm. they're not getting paid very much. And some people during the sort of confessionals at, uh, at the police Academy, a lot of those people you're saying, I'm doing this because my father is a cop or et cetera. But there, a lot of them were, are doing it too 
like some of the commentaries, like I'm doing it because everything's good in my heart, but I know a lot of people are here just because they want a job, right? They just graduated mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. They only have six months of training, six months of training. Then they have to go into like the mean streets of Mexico city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're, you're talking about the difference between American policing and Mexican. And something that was interesting in this movie too, is there's a, there's a, a drunken man who starts urinating on the one police officer. <laughs> right. And he just, he just stands there uh, is Montoya. He just stands there. And, and then uh, this other gentleman comes up to him and said, like, why didn't you do anything about that? Like in the, and, and the gentleman says, I live in Miami there. That guy would be on the ground. He would be yeah. down. And um, Montoya Montoya says he has rights. He has rights. And I'm just like, I couldn't, it seemed kind of unbelievable to me that even in Mexico, like, I don't know, like why, you know, what, you know, what their justice systems like there, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't see that in Canada either. Somebody just coming up urinating on a police officer and (laughs) it just like, okay, please stop. Okay. Good day. See you go. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it just, it seemed that's actually, that does seem a little far-fetched to me, but it does show like the difference in, in, you know, like American versus Mexican here. And, you know, there is some reference in it. It isn't mentioned a lot, but like the cartels, right. You know, like you're going into a really dangerous situation in Mexico when you're a police officer. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting watching the actors because they were, you know, they were embedded here in the, in the Academy. And then they also were going out, on uh, patrol too right and mm-hmm. you could tell they were scared and i i, I mm-hmm. think uh, monica del carmen is teresa you made some good points about her like trying to fire the gun mm-hmm. at the academy and it, it's really interesting to see that level of realism like they're showing her and you could see of course that's going to be a problem if you haven't fired a gun before she's having trouble firing the gun and then she's talking about you know, the, the one big test they had where they had to jump off a platform. (laughs) Yeah. What is it? Seven meters into water and she can't swim. And, but they said they'll pull her out right away. And yeah, she's got a rope tied around her arm. Yeah. Um, And it's like, it's not even like a test of like swimming ability. It seems like it's, um, you know, in the case of like a water rescue or something like that. But even at that, you have to wonder how often police officers are probably involved in something like that. But even still, it's like, it's kind of like a hazing ritual. It's like, go up on this highest diving board and leap in. Oh, you can't swim? Eh, whatever. It's not about swimming. It's about like showing your daring. And it's about showing that you have the, I guess, the um, intestinal fortitude to be a police officer that when the time comes, to run into danger, you will do it and you will not hesitate. And th- in that scene, you could hear somebody blowing the whistle off screen, just like blowing, blowing it, blowing it, blowing it, trying to make her jump. And it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> unless you're an Olympic diver or something, unless you're like, you know, some sort of, um, you know, daredevil, uh, you know, that's not an easy. I, I certainly I wouldn't. No. <laughs> I, I know some people probably would enjoy it. I wouldn't be one. Yeah, it no. would be like, yeah. And, and so they have to go through this and then they have to go out in the streets and they don't know what's going to happen. And then, oh yeah, it's really, 
really moving moment where they encounter, I think there's a young girl who's been like being trafficked for sex, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 uh, Teresa, the, the, you know, the actor playing a police officer is in that situation mm-hmm. and she's, she's hugging the young girl and it's, you know, this is, it's becoming r- real for these actors, which is, it, it's interesting, just interesting how, how deep they went into their characters. You know, mm-hmm. we often praise like American um, actors for, um, you know, going that <laughs> deep, you know, Robert De Niro drove a taxi cab, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Jared Leto sent used condoms to the cast of Suicide Squad. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. There's there's something to this idea because this has been compared a lot to the the, the Alan and Susan Raymond doc, the police tapes, which was essentially they got into the backseat of a police car. And it, interesting, there's you know there's a lot of POV shots of like shooting from the back seat through the um, through the windshield, um, which I think is kind of a purposeful reference to the police tapes. But of course you can't make a documentary like that anymore, getting into the back of a police car and just filming everything because, you know, wasn't that what cops was essentially was. I mean, cops was mm-hmm. the, the um, like the dollar store version of police tapes where it just like, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily interested in any of the like highbrow stakes of the police tapes and just wanted to get like the the carnage candy of 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 being a cop out in the street so like this is kind of taking it to the next level you can't go out and film the actual police because um cops has kind of undermined that sort of verite approach so what's the next best thing putting actors in that situation um but putting real actors to, having real actors do real police work essentially and yeah. the thing with the the urinating you mentioned that sort of made sense to me because as we see later the love the, the love patrol essentially comes to an end because they're out on patrol and they come across like this well a-hole uh to be polite uh who is like him and his friends have like their motorcycles parked all around the, all across the street. Like nobody can get around. So she gets out and she's like, Hey dude, you got to move your, these were dude a lot, which I find interesting. Um, you got to move your, your motorcycle. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And she's like, well, like I'm the police. I'm telling you to move. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then her, like one of their supervisors shows up and like, uh, this guy is paid up. Like, why are you harassing this guy? Like he is, like all the he's paid all the bribes and you're out here giving him the business like this is over <laughs> and it's so yeah. you know in, in that kind of environment where like you don't know if someone you deal with is like paid up with the right people to make your life miserable <laughs> mm-hmm. is yeah. it really worth like tackling the urinating guy who's the drunk urinating guy to the ground if he's like the governor's idiot nephew or something yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> i mean that's the kind of thing they have to deal with <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's it really shows it's like a thankless thankless job yeah and it's interesting because you sort of you can see the corruption and you can see all the problems but then you do have empathy too for them because 
you know, it's just not, not a job I or most people would want. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no. And the corruption is like, as you said, it's like trickle up because you have to pay off the clerk to get like the good bulletproof vest and ammo. And there's a scene where Montoya goes, I think it's Montoya. He goes out on patrol and he goes in and he get, collects his bulletproof vest and he's given his gun and some ammo and he's given an ammo in, in like an ammo tray and you only see like a few bullets. And then the next cop walks up and the clerk gives him the bulletproof vest, his gun, a nicer gun, I would add, a bigger gun and several more bullets. And that stuck out in my mind. It's like, Wait, why does that guy get more bullets? And then then you find out later on, it's because you have to pay off the clerk. And it's like, well, in a situation where you're a cop, you make crappy pay as it is. Nobody in <laughs> nobody in the mix. I, I mentioned this because of something mentioned at city council the other night about the sunshine list. Nobody in the Mexico police force is on the sunshine list. That's for sure. Um, but I mean, at the same time, when you have to pay out the clerk so that you have enough ammo <laughs> or a yeah. bulletproof vest and then there were like all these rules that Teresa was talking about like um you know you if you take off your vest while on shift uh and you get shot your life insurance isn't paid out yeah. um if you are injured uh on the job and instead of waiting for an ambulance to come uh, a fellow officer tries to drive you to the hospital and that officer dies on route the, the officer who tried to rescue him is liable. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it, 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 it's almost like the money has to be if, like all those people who are saying like, ah, I'm joining the police forces. I need a job. It's like, well, they kind of have it. I mean, that's basically all you can all these lofty aspirations. Like you, you wonder how far they fall off when you sort of get into the system where you have to pay off the clerk to get a good bulletproof vest and you have to. Yeah put your life in the hands of the ambulance with which won't show up until somebody's confirmed that it's a real medical emergency. <laughs> yeah. It's it's you know at the end of the day corruption just makes sense because if you know if you have all these dangers and all these rules that like prevent you from acting like a normal person would in these situations you might as well be making bank from it. Uh and that's I mean that's kind of like the trickle up corruption of the situation. Yeah, it just becomes so commonplace. And at, at the end of this film, because it's so interesting, all the different stages it goes through, you've got the actors and you've got, then then you talk to the actors about what they're doing. And then at the end, you have the real people. If I read that right, you have the real people who it's based on. Because mm-hmm. um, it's actually based on real officers called Dub the Love Patrol. Mm-hmm. And and you're sort of feeling empathy for them because it's right after the scene you're talking about Adam worth the motorcycles and you see how they, um, they were punished, mm-hmm. you know, for trying to do their job because this person was like well-connected and uh, paid all the bribes and then accused them of it. Ex- then he accused the love patrol of trying to extort him when they yeah. weren't, they were just right. doing their job. And then after you see the, the people the officers the whole movie's based on and then they start like really revealing how corruption became part of their day-to-day mm-hmm. and how they're you know 
attempting to just justify it because that's how it is. You know, everyone else is doing it. This is what you have to do if you want, you know, it's so underfunded, you know, that's interesting in Mexico. It's like underfunded police, I guess, but mm-hmm. um, it's so underfunded there that they have to um, take or give bribes to, and to give and take bribes constantly. And they're, they're really justifying it. So it's kind of interesting because right before that, you're feeling like they're sort of maybe on a moral high ground after that scene with the motorcycles. And then you realize in re- in reality, you know, it's because of the circumstances, but in reality, they're just there. They're just part of the problem too, right? They're all involved in the corruption as well. So you mm. feel for them, but you know, they're, they're part of it. Everyone, everyone's doing it. So we're doing it. We have to do it. We can justify it, you know, and there's almost like a plea to the camera where it's like, you know, you would have to do this too. This is what, this is, this is the circumstance we're in Mm -hmm. um, where you just have to be corrupt. You know, you Mm -hmm. have to give bribes and take bribes. That's the only way you can uh, survive in, in the police force there. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting, and I I don't think the director was terribly interested in, in drawing comparisons to policing and, the United States. Um, he's very focused on sort of the, the, the low level stakes of these two patrol cops. Um, it, it's the opposite end, though, right? In the United States, you have police departments that have so much power that corruption is kind of incidental and it, it sort, of, sort of becomes a culture there, too. Like if you think about some of these police unions that were like actively fighting vaccine mandates um, mm-hmm. from from the political body, from City Hall. And then you go to Mexico where corruption happens because as, even as a police officer, you have almost no power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the people don't respect you. The criminals don't respect you. Your superiors don't respect you. The politicians don't respect you. So like... The corruption, I mean, it makes you ask a question. At what point is, like, corruption, like, an aberration? And at what point does it just become, like, another function of the system? Like, is there really that much a difference, like, say, giving your confidential informant 50 bucks and, like, (laughs) taking 50 bucks to, you know, uh, cover this laundromat or whatever to pay protection or to give the clerk a 50 pesos a month to get the good bulletproof vest you know it's you like corruption to say corruption it's it's to say this is something that doesn't happen very often it is a bug in the system but corruption extortion these are features in the mexico police system so you know can you say that they're at fault or and that every cop that takes a bribe is at fault or is the system at fault because as a cop in Mexico, you have no power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's it, it's interesting. Like if you go back to older Hollywood police movies, um, there's one in the 80s, Prince of the City mm. by Sidney Lumet. And it's about the new it's based on a true story in the New York Police Department. And Serpico is the same. It's a police mm-hmm. officer in New York. I think in both cases, 
they didn't want to take bribes. They didn't want, they wanted to just be above board on everything. And the whole culture of the police department was telling them, why are you doing this? It's so strange. Like, why would you not take a bribe? You know, it's not hurting anybody. It's just, it's part of the system mm. it's to help you get by in your life. And, and, and everyone looks at them like, like they're from another planet almost. And I could imagine that times 10, maybe in Mexico, if you did the same thing, it'd be like, why aren't you, why aren't you bribing this person? Why aren't you taking a bribe? It's all part of the game. We're all, you know, players in this game. Why aren't you doing that? Mm -hmm. Interesting to note that, you know, that time period, the seventies and the eighties, I mean, that was a time of, of, of sort of urban decay in New York. Like the Bronx was the arson capital of the world for like a period of three years in the 1970s. Um, I think a building was burned down like every hour. I don't know the exact figure, but it, I mean, it was something like it was that regular, like a building burned down in the Bronx once an hour <laughs> at yeah. one point in the 70s. So when like things are falling down around you and you have the mayor talking about, you know, cutting the budget and having to tighten the belt and, um, you know, laying off cops, you know, so now you're doing the work of like three patrolmen um, for stagnant pay. I mean, these kind of sort of political um, cycles and, and these like economic downturns sort of like feed corruption because you're like, well, like look at, these people making out or this person like has managed to evade justice it's like so why don't i get something for myself except it's kind of continuous in mexico you see these cycles in in you know the united states or even canada but it it seems to be sort of continue there's no period of renewal in mexico for things to sort of um i guess reach a reach a new equilibrium but you know sort of so so the corruption has a chance to become systemic even in serpico at the end you know the the corruption is is still there it's still exposed but it's still exposed and um sort of one good cop is is recognized at the end of the day the one good cop is is still recognized but you know in in mexico um the, the good cop i was gonna say the good cops are made bad but i don't even think they're made bad i think they just sort of are knuckled under having to play the the, the part in the system because there's there's no way they can't play another part everybody's playing the same part and it's, yeah it's interesting you say playing the part because the whole structure of this quasi documentary is playing a part um mm-hmm. and it's all focused on that mm-hmm. and you know what happens when you put on the uniform? What changes are there? You know, how do people look at you differently? Mm-hmm. And it, you know, from what I saw in a lot of a lot of that, you know, quasi documentary, it's like you, you're not getting much respect as a police officer, if any, in, in Mexico, <laughs> if any. And you know, in in uh, North America, there's so many problems with police forces and stuff, but still. You know, mm-hmm. we're still deferential. We're still, you know, we're still mm. respect them. Mm-hmm. You're still, you still have a, you know, some fear that you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to get away with stuff. Which there, it's like it seems like you're saying, 
if you paid off the right people, yeah, you're okay. And it's probably true in so many countries around the world, unfortunately, right? But it's interesting seeing it in Mexico City in the Spanish language in a film film like that. Seeing sort of a window into that, and um, really interesting filmmaker too with with the d- devices he uses and yeah, you know, just you know, yeah, focusing on. Yeah, looking at the form of documentary in that, you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like the subject material is interesting, but I mean, it's also interesting what uh, Ruiz Palacios does, um, sort of pushing the envelope of like what is documentary. Like, at what point does reenactment become drama? Um, <laughs> because I mean, a lot of documentaries have reenactments, but you know, this is like the first hour of this is almost entirely reenactment, yeah. and. Um, I mean, that's, it's a really interesting approach. I mean, from a filmmaking point of view, from a subject matter point of view, uh, there's a lot to chew on from this. I, I'm almost envious you watched it twice because I feel like I have to watch it again. Um, also because like the, everyone's speaking Spanish. I don't like, again, this was not a film I think meant for um, primarily English speakers because uh, the people are talking very quickly, a little hard to keep up with the subtitles which may be another reason to watch this again. Um, but it is, it, I think it is fascinating enough to warrant two watches um, and not just one. It, it is um, a really interesting documentary to be sure. Yeah. And if you're dozing off in your recliner, <laughs> you'll need to, you'll need to watch it a second and you're supposed to review it for a radio show. You'll need to yeah. watch it a second. <laughs> yeah. I don't think this is the type of documentary you want to watch as kind of like a, I need something to put me to sleep. Um, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of true crime stock series on Netflix that are kind of like purpose built for that. But yeah. I digress. No. Uh, Tim, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you on the Internet? On the Internet, you can see, find me a flash in the deadpan on uh, social media. And that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it on the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And if you're on Spotify anyway, you can check out the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just open up that Spotify app and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for News and Politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Dalton. And you can find my News and Politics at Guelph Politico, which is guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And of course, we will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another brand new edition of End Credits, and we will see you then.